Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. A woman dies for no apparent reason in a church in Fleet Street. A pair of children were playing witch hunter nearby, and they placed a curse on her. Further equally inexplicable deaths follow soon after. This is Meat and Drink to Bryant and May, the superannuated detectives in Christopher Fowler's entertaining series. Fowler gained an enviable reputation as a writer of what he calls dark fiction, and his brilliant feel for the underside of life feeds in satisfyingly to his more recent persona as a writer of cheerful murder mysteries. After spending a delightful week with Bryant and May in the shadows and basements and secret places of London, Tim met Chris in the airy reassurance of a penthouse terrace in King's Cross to the accompaniment of a stiff breeze and the sounds of the metropolis. This is Tim Haygreed's books, and today the book is Christopher Fowler's new Bryant and May book, Bryant and May and the Invisible Code. Uh, we're here, actually, on a beautiful afternoon on the terrace of his uh, penthouse apartment. Thank you for having us, Chris. Very nice to see you, Tim. Now, I thought I was a Christopher Fowler fan. I have read a stack of your books, um, you know, eight or nine, and then when I was looking into this, I realised I've barely scratched the surface, have I? You've written... <laughs> yeah, it's a frightening number, actually. <laughs> have you any, any idea how many it is? Uh, somewhere in the 40s. But actually, on, on the big scheme of things, for a writer that's... In the past, people wrote about 150 books in their career, so it's. I figure I'm still on the low side. Um, yeah, so the David Foster Wallace approach is... Uh... <laughs> a lot of, a lot of um, let's say, the jobbing writers of the 30s and 40s wrote between 100 and 150 novels. It's not, not unusual. Well, they don't do it now. <laughs> I uh, first, I think, first came across you with Spanky, which was a big success for you, and I, yeah. thought, I thought it was yeah. just fantastic. I was, I was a, an instant uh, fan, and that was very much you were working very much in the sort of horror genre. Back yeah, then. it was kind of dark, dark fiction. Um, I've never really worked in the in the sort of what, what we would call the mainstream. I've always been slightly around the edges of it. So dark fiction, fa- um, fantastical elements in a in a realistic story, I think. But, I mean, Spanky was an unusual one because it can be read as an entirely realistic psychological story. I a do. man with a split personality. <laughs> um, oh, sort of Fight Club number, you. Well, yeah, Fight Club actually did come out the same year, <laughs> which was really annoying. <laughs> yeah, Spanky was better than Fight Club. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying so. I didn't get filmed, but uh, <laughs> came very close to it. <laughs> The um, Brian to May and the Invisible Code. I was I was delighted when you when you used Brian to May because that was matches when I was a boy. Yep. It's, it was a, uh, and and I thought he's never going to get away with that when I first came across them and I thought, yeah, he has. <laughs> I know because actually it's amazing how how few people realise there were matches because they've gone now. Of course, in the course of writing these books, the company's folded. Brian to May and the Invisible Code is the tenth book in the series. Again, I'm I'm so ashamed. I, I was aware of them. Because uh, I've, I've come across Bryant and May before the, the, the series. They were in, there was one called Soho Black, and they were in a couple of your other books as, as peripheral characters. Yeah, but I was trying them out. You were try- and then you've, you've, you've developed them into, uh, into a, a series. But this is the 10th one? How did I miss them? I, <laughs> I, d- I didn't think they were going to go to 10. I did one. I mean, the first one actually was turned down by the publisher because they thought there was no mileage in two elderly characters. 
because they said, you know, oh, it's, it's, isn't it going to be a bit boring with these sort of old people? There's not going to be much sex and fighting. And I said, that's the whole, that's the whole point. It'll, they'll have time to do other things. They'll be, I bet you're a bit cross about new tricks as well, then, aren't you? Do you know, I've never seen it. Have you not? <laughs> I've never seen it. Oh, I don't watch TV. They work on the, the, it's the unsolved crimes case. Now, your, your unit's called the Peculiar Crimes Unit, which yeah. I thought is just a brilliant idea to give you the most interesting subjects to, to to write about you, you make it just uh, people who just investigate peculiar ones yeah absolutely it's it it actually stems from something that's uh, has an element of truth in it my father worked in a scientific unit during the war and was one one of many scientific units that were set up in, in slightly oddball units they were normally run by sort of uh, 19 to 20 year olds they were they were the real cream of the scientific crop coming into um, help the government. I mean, um, the Churchill government hired the Royal Academy to develop all of their camouflage tactics against the against the Germans. They hired Dennis Wheatley to work out what the Germans might do next. And he was as nutty as a fruitcake. Barmy. And of course, he actually ended up working in the war office as well, which is perfect for, for him. It was his dream job. So uh, my, my unit wasn't actually that uh, weird an idea. Yeah, Bryanton may are not the uh, 20 somethings bright young things, though, are they? They're fairly super. Well, in this, they're superannuated. Some of the other yeah. books have gone back to earlier earlier cases for them. Let's talk about Bryant and May a bit. Basically, sure. you've got these, these two principal characters, uh, Arthur Bryant, John May. They're partners, they're very different. In fact, you even helped me at one point in the book. You, you have uh, uh, Bryant characterize them don't he? he says to John May something like uh, you're the kind of person who always wants there to be a solution that's the best and most obvious solution from the beginning of the facts and I'm not like that and that that's that's how you've you've you divided them yeah very much so what I've done is taken golden age detectives and just chucked them in the modern world so that way you get this kind of weird disparity between um, an old-fashioned way of thinking and they're forced into a a world with CCTV and mobile phones and electronic devices. Well, again, you, you've divided that. But Bryant is very much the the uh, the um, the one who who isn't au fait with the technological stuff. He's he's the one who knows everything and has a book for everything. And John May uses and uh, John May drives. I mean, Bryant doesn't even drive, does he? Um, well, he he tries to drive an, a battered old mini, but is uh, every now and again he's, he's normally forbidden from driving it because you have to start it with a teaspoon. Because it was something my dad used to do. It was the only way he could get it out of first was by sticking an apostle spoon down the back of the the shift. So um, he he does these sort of. He's very quirky. Yeah, he's he's the goes. He doesn't go for the right solution. He goes round to find a different solution to everything. Yeah, and of he course gets that's, lost in that's books. the way he he uh, he solves his crimes as well. Yeah, he gets lost in arcana and peculiarities of, about London, and by doing so, normally uncovers something that no one else would ever have thought of. Well, that's, that's pretty much your stock in trade as well. I mean, in a way, there are actually three characters, three main characters. There's a lot of other characters. I know what you're going to say, London. Characters. Of course, London yeah. is, the, is the third character because you yeah. are in love with London and, and what you can find out, aren't you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised here and it's, so it's, it's an ancient city. Um, I think if I was born and raised in Paris, I'd probably be doing the same thing there. But, uh, and finding out as many weird and wonderful yeah, things about it. Yeah, I think you do. And, and there's a reason why the last few books have been set in King's Cross, because I'm living in King's Cross, and the more you get talking to local people... I mean, I try to do as much from talking to people as as you know, hanging around old bookshops and libraries, because um, one of the problems of, of, of digging out an arcane subject, particularly if you do it online, is you always end up going back to the same three or four sources. And that gets a bit boring, you know. 
If I if I go to one more talk about 19th century London and, and hear about Oscar Wilde, I'll go nuts because there were so many more interesting things happening than Oscar Wilde. I mean, obviously that's a great story. There are other other, other stories to tell as well. Yeah, and, and and what what you I mean what you do then is you you've dug out an enormous amount of stuff. There are all sorts of details, lots of stories. I mean, there's one point where you 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 have um, uh, uh, Sabira. Kasavian, who's one of your characters, she's one of the principal characters, going to the London Central Mosque. And you just can't help telling us the, the, the origin of, of the mosque. You know, the, 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 it was, uh, the land was actually sequestered by the Churchill government yes. uh, to, to thank the, the Muslims of the empire for their help in, during the Second World War. Now, those details are, are not necessary to, to the plot that we're reading, but you, you just love putting that in, don't you? Also, I think I actually think uh, people do like to know about that stuff because whenever I do a, um, a, a public audience, uh, people always come up and say, "I've learnt so much about uh, something." You've maybe dig into that, that subject more deeply, and it's actually very interesting. But I'm tr- I try not to go, you know, I try not to turn into a sort of Peter Ackroyd and just make it about you know, London. I try to keep the carry the the, the story moving forward. Yes. I have to be a bit careful because and, and there is there is a, a temptation with that. But Peter Ackroyd, um, he has that characteristic of of um, thinking that he knows better than everybody else. And um, I, I, with yours, there's just a sort of glee in, in oh, I've got this stuff. I can tell you all about it. Um, so I mean, you take us to lots of locations that that well, some of them I know. So I know that they're right. There's St Bride's Church in Fleet Street, where the first murder happens. This one I know is true because I know the church. I've, I've, I've been into it. Uh, the Guildhall, you, you described the, the pictures of Gog and Magog looking down at the diners. I've seen that. I know that's true. Do you make anything up? Do, or do you, do you make a, a sort of... Pro, is it a point of pride to... Uh, I, it, it is a point of pride. I really, really try not to make stuff up. I go to a non-fiction writer's night once a month. I mean, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a bunch of people in a pub, but it's, uh, they're, they're also fascinated with London and they often come up with... Uh, peculiar facts about London that that then I start following leads from, and so I, I yeah it is a bit of a matter of pride not to, not to make stuff up. You know, obviously the plots are made up, but uh, but the, I always say in the books that the weirder things are the truest ones. Some of the most unbelievable facts are true. So you've got a bit of the uh, of the crown of thorns of Christ's crown of thorns in the basement of the British Museum. Is that true? I mean, would I find the, this that true this thing? That? Yeah, this 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 relic. Which you know is supposed to ha- have a thorn, and the, the idea that it was it might be might be blood and not a thorn was was my addition. But the the whole description of the actual object is exactly as it's described in the museum. Well, I, I was sure it was because all the things that I do know, you're you're so accurate about that. I do, you know, you know, one sort of develops a certain kind of faith. W- would you let Bryanton May go anywhere that, that wasn't true um, or that wasn't uh, really there? Um, I think I find that really difficult now because. Um, I think people would call me up, call me on it, and, and say, "Well, you made this bit up." Um, there's been a, an idea to take them to America and, and do something, you know, new, with them in New York. But I actually don't feel confident enough in knowing enough about New York. I think I would it would take a lot more. But the research was tax deductible. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that'd be good. So take them to the Bahamas then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Where do you really want yeah, to go? Rio. <laughs> I believe they're having something on in Rio in a few years. I'll book it in. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, in the f- now, the first time I came across Brian to May, I think it was Soho Black, which had uh, 
non-natural element to it. Um, and you, you, you leave open the question for most of the book whether these murders are supernatural or not. I thought that was terribly clever because, of course, they could be, given your background and given Brighton and May's background, or they could have a natural, um, an, a natural explanation. Um, tell me about the, 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 super, the supernatural or the, the implications. You've got witches implied. You've got... Why, why all that? Um, partly because it's actually part of London history. I mean, you have, you have to bear in mind that the last British witch trial was 1944. Was it really? Yeah. In London? It was, no, it was in the Midlands. Uh-huh. I think it was in the Midlands. Um, so, and uh, the thing about Alistair Crowley living in uh, the end of the Caledonian Road in King's Cross is entirely true. Mm. Um, so, uh, uh, the details are, are actually correct. You, you've, you've, you've taken his um, house, haven't you, in, uh, to, to, to use yeah. as the... <laughs> In fact, what I'm going to do, can I ask you to read that paragraph? Because yeah, th- sure. at the beginning of the book, there's a, there's a memo from the boss of the unit, and he's, he's saying, you know, could we all just calm down a bit? Um, so if I give you the book, if it's on page 12, that paragraph will be lovely. Okay, this was a housekeeping note to the rest of the staff from the acting boss of the Peculiar Crimes Unit, Raymond Land. I want to put the rumours to rest about our new building once and for all. While it appears to be true that a Mr. Alistair Crowley once held meetings here and, de- and decorated the wall of my office with inappropriate images of young ladies and aroused livestock, the building is most emphatically not haunted. It's an old property with a colourful history and has Victorian pipes and floorboards. The noises these make at night are quite normal and certainly don't sound like the, quote, death rattles of trapped souls, as I overheard Mira telling someone on the phone. May I remind you that you are British officers of the law and are not required to have any imagination. <laughs> See, that was the first time I chuckled, and that's, that's on page 12. So I knew I was going to enjoy it. I should put my cards on the table. I loved this book. I think it rattles along with a, an enormous uh, verve and, and energy. Um, and uh, it's, got, I mean, it's got everything. It's got all that information about London. It's got uh, murders. It's got an investigation. Um, how? Why all of that? Um, actually, I find the, the books are getting um, easier because now that I don't have this incredible mushigas to get all of the London detail into every book, I actually feel like I can take one, one subject each time. So this one is partly about London's hidden codes. So there's, there's as, you, as you know, there are two codes at work in the book. There's the there's an actual physical code that's that's hidden in the in the murders, but there's also the invisible code of London um, class, and it was class a, and gender actually. class and gender because it was loosely based on something I read about the wife of a, a diplomat who who did an interview in I think Daily Telegraph complaining that she felt excluded from British society even though she was better read and spoke more languages than most. So that gave you Sabira Kazavian, the, 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 the first real sort of uh, subject of the, of the crimes that are happening. She's not the first murder, but she's the first subject of the crimes. And she's, um, if it was Armenian, where's she from? Um, gosh, you got me now. <laughs> she, she's from somewhere yeah, else. She's, yeah, she's, she's from Eastern Europe and, and, and she's uh, married a high up intellect, in the she's not, government. Yeah, she's not uh, taken seriously. More, more by the, you know, more by, not by her her partner, but by the people that surround him and are kowtowing to him, who, who then treat her as an outsider, which seems to be quite a common thing that I've heard from, from other people, that that although they do find the English quite, you know, 
basically friendly, they are gently but firmly treated as outsiders for quite a long period of time. Now, she, she has quite a lot to do with, um, there are three wives, of course there are three, because you're making a reference to three witches, um, of other high ups in the, in the government. And it's quite interesting, I, I don't know if you did it deliberately, but the, the wives came across more clearly defined than their husbands. And in fact, you've got a line in the, in the book about one of the uh, wives says something like, well, if I want to know what a, what a man in position of power thinks, I just ask his wife. I, I really like writing strong women. Uh, I did a play last year called Celebrity about a, a strong woman. And um, in fact, we're, we're just workshopping it now for the West End next year, which is now called Falling Stars. And it's, it's about a, um, a female um, PR agent uh, in her 50s. And one of the things I had found I found easiest about that was casting it because there were hundreds of women available who said, thank God somebody's writing for stronger older women, you know, because I actually really enjoyed doing that. that and stronger older women are interesting. Yeah, they've, they've got so much going on with them. Yeah. We've, we've got gender there, but um, you, you started off talking about class and, and class is a big deal of this. You've even given uh, Brian a little riff on class um, uh, early on in the book to, to sort of introduce the subject that when he says something, you know, they're terrified of having their, um, their plasma televisions taken away. You, you brought in this, this uh, Eastern European lady almost to point that up because of course the British put up with class. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing that uh, when people come to the UK, the first, they, it's the first thing they notice and it's the last thing that the English ever want to talk about. Um, it, you know, and everybody always feels that it's the middle class class that actually are the most aggrieved, you know, of all the classes. I always think of those old sketches with Ronnie Corbett and John Cleese on the Frost show where there's three of them standing in a row. I look up to him, but I look down at him. Yeah. Do you remember those? Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. TW3, um, that's right. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. And that, that was the first, I suppose the first time I even ever thought about class was as a kid. And it's always been really, really fascinating. And you know, sort of coming from this sort of, vaguely lower middle class family of you know pa pa professional parents who were always you know broke and and where they saw themselves you mentioned that uh, spanky had never been made into a movie the these would uh, make a, a tv show would i mean would you like to see it is it something that you'd aspire to i would yeah they've been in, in and out of option for for years and uh, last year we had cast michael gambon and derek jacoby I, I was wondering who you'd cast. Yes, they would work. Um, yeah. I, I, I wondered, how, how about um, Simon Russell Beale? He's a little young for the yeah. old Brian, but then you could do the flashbacks, couldn't you? Well, that, yeah, but that's also quite good. I mean, I think you need to cast them young because if a, if a TV service was around for a few years, you need them uh, fairly like, young and limber because actually I make them do quite a lot of things that older people wouldn't necessarily do. I, mean, I think in the first couple of books, I put them down drains and up the tops of buildings and... Things like that. Mm, so James Bolam's definitely out for it. Yes. Um, in your blog, you've uh, you say that uh, this is this is the end of a narrative arc. You've written ten, yep. and there were two narrative arcs, and I thought that was very interesting. Partly because I have no idea what you mean. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, when you get a TV series that has a kind of overall overarching nar narrative arc, like. You know, X Files was always coming back to the uh, you know uh, the cigarette smoking guy. And, yeah. Uh, well, in fact, there are there are there's a narrative arc, arc to book six, and then there's a, a bigger one to twelve, which is this sort of government conspiracy thing that's been bubbling around through. In fact, if you if you look back through the books, you'll find um, 
that I hide in them as a kind of reward point scheme for loyal readers. Uh, if they want to look at the 10 books as one big story, there's stuff in the 10th that's referred to in the second and third books. So, in fact, I did actually have a big scheme. Um, You're J.K. My... Rowling in disguise. <laughs> but it's, it's a funny thing, you know. You do. I've always had this tendency towards big, um, big arching themes. I, I used to draw comics when I was a very small kid. No, I, I did look, too. I look back at them. I've got, you know stacks of them in, in the cupboard and they had these giant themes that went for hundreds of pages so it was obviously something I'm surprised I didn't just drift off in, into doing science fiction series with you know huge universes because that's kind of what I've, I'm tr you know, trying to avoid creating really I try to keep it on down to a manageable number of characters that people can follow easily can we indulge me and go back to one or two of the uh, the detailed things that you've put in um, one of the things which I thought was lovely is you, um, Brian says he he doesn't want to die in a car accident. He doesn't want to be a cellotaff. Uh, what's a cellotaff? A cellotaff is when people sellotape um, bunches of flowers to a lamp post. You you haven't coined that. That's that's no. I just heard it. I mean, there used to be, there was there's always ones in King's Cross. You know, but, uh, some I remember hearing somebody say, "Oh, we've got another cellotaff." I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that word yeah. now. That's a useful <laughs> one. And then you've got a, a reference to um, there's a wig club. That were in in the in the um, oh seventeenth century. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about the wig club oh, the, in the, Edinburgh. The, the pubic hair wig uh, wigs that were made. This is part of the um, the sort of vice clubs of uh, of Britain. That um, there yeah, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of um, hellfire clubs that had um, phallic phallic shaped goblets and and this. You're supposed to have to put on this this wig of, of woven of pubic hair. I mean, I, th I know the phallic-shaped goblets are real because I've seen photographs of them at the British Library. Um, uh, but I, ha I haven't actually tracked down the picture of the the wig. One sounds rather fanciful, but it's but it's ref it's referenced quite frequently. And quite and frequently. Uh, they, they all caught lice from it because it was yeah because it was passed around. <laughs> passed around. <laughs> Not a very clean time. <laughs> Um, yeah, one of the things is, you know, it's a lot easier to research the, the more recent parts of London history. Then the further back you go, the, the fewer and fewer source, sources you get to. And you keep coming back to the same handful of uh, stories. Whenever I've uh, met a policeman, they, they tell me that when, when they admit in a social gathering or something that they're a policeman, then everybody is always a little bit reserved. They just back off an inch from them. Do you find that as an author as well? Um, well, actually, quite a lot of people really want to be put in your, in your book. And I just saw this T-shirt saying, uh, careful, you're, you might be in my next novel, which I felt like buying. Um, but uh, what's, what's weird is there is a correlation between p policemen and crime writers that's, that's quite natural. And there's a woman police officer who I've become friends with around here who's incredibly erudite and interested in the, in the lo local history of the area. And um, she tells me all about her um, investigations and things, that, you know, the stuff that she's allowed to tell me. And she gives me the kind of details that I would never, ever have thought of in a million years. Um, can I give you one? Oh, please. Uh, oh, I was hoping okay. you would. Yeah. Um, she said she really likes doing... She, she used to really like doing... Um, watching... Um, on uh, in council estates, uh, watching, say, a, a, a crack den or somewhere where, where people were coming in and out every 15 minutes through the night. She used to enjoy the roof roof um, surveillance because she, she said that all the pitch, pigeon excrement up there, all the ammonia, really cleared her sinuses because she suffered from a blocked nose. Oh, you could put that in a book. I already have. Yeah. <laughs> 
because that that's 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 lived detail, is that? Yeah, you it? don't get that now. You don't get that on the internet. <laughs> well, the book is Bryant and May and the Invisible Code. It's published by Doubleday. It's sixteen ninety nine. I know it's out already because uh, it's been out for a couple of weeks or th I think. Uh, more Bryant and May books on the way. Yes, indeed. Uh, Bryant and May and the Bleeding Heart and Bryant and May and the Burning Man. Chris, thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. That was Tim Haig Reads Books. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>